Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 64. My name is Dan Holzman and I'm your host. Today's special guest is Life Pedersen, author of the new book, Throwing Up, Notes from 35 Years of Juggling, available now at Amazon.com. Before we get to Life and his interview, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. Of course, that stands for International Jugglers Association. Interested in juggling? Want to find a great group of jugglers to hang out with, learn about festivals and products? Then go to juggle.org and find out all about the IJA. Looking for a new skill toy? A cross between a yo-yo and a kendama? Then check out ringdama.com. All right, enough thank yous, enough brouhaha. Let's drop everything and get ready for Life Pedersen. Welcome to Drop Everything number 64, my special guest, Life Pedersen. Am I saying that right? Life Pedersen. You, you nailed it, Dan. Wonderful. Because looking at it, I would want to say Leif Peterson. How, how often do you get that? Virtually every single day. Um, actually, and it's not completely unfair, uh, Leif and Leif are actually the more popular pronunciations of my name. Life is somewhat rare, so I get the unusual pronunciation and the, with the unusual name. It's, it's, um, it's gangs of fun, Dan. Now, did you choose life as a choice, or was that sort of your parents said, no, we're going to pronounce it life, and gave you no choice? Yeah, my grandmother actually uh, was is entirely and solely responsible for that because my parents were being they were dithering and couldn't decide on a name for me, and the hospital wouldn't let them take me home until they named me. So it kind of came down to a rush decision, I think. And and here I am, forty eight years later. Now, did that lead into any kind of interesting childhood trauma? Having an unusual name, I know in school that <laughs> any name that sticks out might be uh, fodder for bullies. Any any, any oh, trouble yeah. with bullies as a youth? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, in addition to the f funny name with innumerable ways to mock, I was also very undersized uh, as a child. I was frequently mistaken for being two, three years, four years younger. And when you're nine, when someone mistakes you for, you know, seven, six, that's, <laughs> that's really, all, I mean, it's a big difference. Like now, if someone thought I was 45 now instead of 48, I'd be like, huh. Yeah. But back then it was, uh, it was a problem. I'm often mistaken for abandoning my early 30s, and I'm 56, so I don't mind that so much. Right. No, and, and I appreciate it now. It was just a, a little rough from age 0 to 16 until I blossomed into the almost average size human that I am today. And I see that uh, you seem to be sort of a blonde, Norwegian-looking fellow. Is, Nor is Norway the... The birth country of your ancestry? Most of it. I, I do have a touch of Swedish and German in me too, but for the most part, it's Norwegian, and my grandmother made sure that that's right on my nameplate. So, <laughs> Yeah, and then I see you're in Minnesota, but you don't have the common Minnesotan accent. Did you work hard to overcome that or never had that? I can't explain it. I'm aware and always have been aware of the accent, but here in Minneapolis, I thought we were cosmopolitan, you know, enough for the accent to be kind of muted. But then when I left and traveled the world, everyone was pointing out that that's not true, that there is even in, you know, the big city, some folks carry around that accent now is just immune to it. So I don't know why mine is, you know, negligible to zero. Maybe it was just all the TV I watched and I <laughs> grew up talking like the, the people on TV who mostly have no accent. But yeah, can't explain it. Um, but yeah, if you come to Minnesota and, and particularly outside of the Twin Cities, that accent that everyone talks about from mm -hmm. Fargo, which is in North Dakota, by the way, but people talk about that accent and that is, I mean, it, it's it's not quite that exaggerated, but almost. Greater Minnesota has that. Western Wisconsin, my girlfriend's parents have a pretty pronounced Minnesota accent. So Yeah, I guess I was thinking about the movie Fargo. I was wondering if you ever put a man in a wood chipper, nothing like that in the past. Well, as a minor, but those things are usually looked over. So, right. you know, as an adult, I have to behave. Those are expunged from your, your permanent records. So we won't, we won't dredge right. up the... But I'd like to start with your past. You're saying you were undersized. Now, were you attracted to juggling because the fact that you thought it would be a sport or activity you could excel at, not being a, a larger youth? Exactly. Well, I mean, I wasn't sitting at home kind of thinking this through, carefully drawing up plans or anything. I think that's kind of what happened with me sort of unconsciously. I... um. I was so small and not particularly coordinated. It was odd. I my, my parents swear that I was exceptionally coordinated from very young, just walking all the way up until three. I could 
dribble a basketball, turn and talk at the same time. I apparently was able to scale signposts wearing, you know, a full snowsuit and mittens. And, you know, somehow I could get purchase on that when, through all those layers. Um, then somewhere around five or six, everyone caught up with me and then raced past me. And I ended up being an undersized, not particularly coordinated kid. So that, you know, manifests itself everywhere when you're a kid because there was sports at the park, junior high school, kickball out in the during recess. My sporting failings were were on display pretty much constantly when when I was out with other kids. So juggling kind of seemed like a very nice solution to that because as you mentioned I could make all my mistakes and and do the learning in private it didn't have to be you know it's not like soccer you you can practice juggling in private for the most part and get all the clumsiness the mistakes the head bonks get all that out of the way and then you know show people once you've got that thing mastered and of course juggling for the most part you know size is not not important as with other things so being tiny as a juggler didn't really affect me too much. Uh, the only thing that I found over time, as I am still somewhat undersized in some respects, is my small hands and my not particularly long arm span has made it difficult for me to do numbers, like holding all those things in my hands and then also having minimal horizontal space to work with. But otherwise, that was the solution I, I landed on at age 12. I remember when I met Emil Dahl, I believe he was the first person to flash nine clubs. And I thought, how does someone flash or even hold nine clubs? Yeah. I met him. He's quite a tall guy and he has very large hands. So they're, they are an advantage. And the guy that currently holds the world record for balls, I'm, his name is slipping my mind, but he is really, you know, his arm span is very wide and has very large hands. I'm somewhat handicapped in that way, but it's, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been a lifelong problem. There's, there are other ways to juggle and, and excel rather than holding nine clubs at once and being able to throw them accurately. I always thought there was sort of a perfect body type for juggling. I always thought Peter Davison to me, oh, yeah. had the right sort of body movement and the body type, that sort of long, lanky. Because like my, myself, I have very limited motion in my shoulders. So any kind of behind the back or when people juggle to one side behind their back, I've always found those kind of maneuvers quite difficult. Yeah, um, same here. I'm not, my problem is I'm just not very flexible. Like my passing partner, Steve Birmingham, his spine seems to be entirely decalcified you know he can bend himself practically into a c-shape when he throws clubs behind his back and i just i can do behind the backs with clubs pretty you know basic stuff but my limited again i'm i guess i'm you and i have the same problem i just can't get my i'm not limber enough to get my arms back there far enough for me to do anything too awesome i hear he's part snake is that true part of anaconda that's some anaconda blood uh, yeah, it's possible. I mean, that's yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of theories. I I think part of it. I think his malleable spine has something to do with his uh, lifelong diet of Mountain Dew and cigarettes. But you know, there might be <laughs> there might be some snake DNA involved as well. And needs to throw some Twinkies in there to balance it out to get all the food groups. <laughs> yes. It's funny though when people think about jugglers, they always say, "Oh, you must have great coordination," as if we have great coordination. That leads us to juggling. I think it's the other way around, that through our practice of juggling, we develop coordination. Yeah, to a certain degree, that's my philosophy is if you come into juggling with a slightly better than average aptitude in general with you, like your dexterity and coordination, that you may not end up being a, a superior juggler compared to someone that like me, who had none of that, certainly it makes the learning process faster, at least in the beginning. And there's wunderkind stories all over the place, you know, people that go from learning how to juggle to being, uh, you know, doing behind the backs with five clubs in only a couple of years. And I still can't do that. So some people definitely are just sort of better designed for it than others. Now, I have in my notes that the first juggler you saw, and maybe this is one of those cases of nature versus nurture, was Anthony Gatto on the show That's Incredible. Was that your first exposure yes. to juggling? Or had you seen it before that? Well, no, I mean, you know, I'd had run into people juggling as a kid, you know, at local fairs. And just I, I lived in kind of a hippie part of uh, South Minneapolis when I was growing up. And oh, and this is interesting. I don't have vivid memories of this, but um, my oldest friend is certain that he and I both sat on the grass and watched a very, very young flying Karamazov brothers practicing in a yard of a friend's house where they were crashing 
in the late seventies, mid to late seventies. But so, you know, I'd, I'd seen it maybe on TV or whatever, but seeing Gatto on that's incredible inspired me for two reasons. One, he was just great, but also he was three years younger than me at the time. You know, I was 12 and he was nine. I was in my head. I was like, if that kid can do it. Then so went out in the yard the very next day with three tennis balls and spent two weeks trying to figure out how to juggle. And that was a pretty influential show that came around the same time I was a teenager. It had the hosts were like Fran Tarkington and Kathy Lee Jones, John Davidson, the Kathy Lee Crosby. Oh, Kathy Lee Crosby. Yeah. John Davidson, the very cheesy singer who had his own talk show yes. for a little bit. Yes. And I remember that the very first person who ever did chainsaws, it's a little bit maybe unknown fact. Who, the first person to do uh, was James Marcel on That's Incredible. He did three running chainsaws, or at least three seemingly running chainsaws on that show. Right. A couple of years before, there was a Venice uh, juggler named Robert Gruenberg who got on The Tonight Show. And some people think he was the first chainsaw juggler. But the very first was James Marcel on that show, That's Incredible. I don't know how I missed that episode. That certainly, <laughs> I, I like to think that would have left an impression on me, but I don't recall seeing that. I, I'm pretty sure I would have been terrified. So when you saw Gatto and you saw, like we were talking about, he was quite small, maybe eight or nine years old at that time. And the, the clubs looked huge in his hands and oh, he was yeah. balance tricks and all kinds of combination tricks, even at that young age. Did you try to emulate him or did you just sort of go on your own path from there? I might have tried to emulate him, but you know, it was, it was 1982. I didn't have a VCR or any way to rewind or, or repeatedly watch his act. I saw that episode of That's Incredible and that was it. You know, I would have to wait six months for reruns, you know, to see it again. So it was kind of impossible for me to to emulate anybody. I was entirely on my own for the first six months there, which is why it took me so long to juggle because I didn't even know what the pattern was supposed to look like. I was, for the first week or so, I was just throwing balls randomly in the air and hoping to catch them and, and just keep on going. And it, it never really got farther than five or six catches before things fell apart because I was just randomly throwing balls. Now, I you know, because when I, I learned to juggle or people ask me about learning to juggle, I would say it's not that hard to learn, but it's hard to figure out. Like if someone shows you how to do it, it's one thing. If you just try to figure it out, you just try to figure it out on your own. Yeah, I like to tell people that it took me two weeks to learn how to juggle, and now I can teach someone in half an hour or so. As with many things in my life, I, I went the most difficult route to get that done. <laughs> but, I mean, I didn't know anybody. I, I had no, not even a, a neighborhood person that I could go to. You know, I was, I was entirely on my own with those bouncy tennis balls in the backyard on a summer vacation. I was lucky. I learned from this book called The Juggling Book by Carlo. And my weapon of choice were green oranges because <laughs> they were they lasted a little bit longer than the orange ones because they weren't ripe, so they didn't break open as quickly. But for the first three years of my juggling career, I basically had three green oranges in that book, The Juggling Book by Carlo. So how did you, you progress from there? Did you find a book? Did you find a teacher? What was your next step? For the first six months, I, I was, yeah, entirely on my own with tennis balls. A, a family friend gave me a copy of the infamous Juggling for the Complete Klutz, which I didn't find the book too helpful, but the uh, the genuine bean bags that came along with it, that certainly improved my life uh, a lot. They were a solid catch. It wasn't like the tennis balls that could bounce and roll out of your hand. And then if they even collided slightly in midair, they would ricochet away from each other. And that would be the end of you. So uh, having the beanbags improved my life, but mostly I was just reinventing the wheel, especially with the tennis balls. I was playing around with bounce tricks mostly. I figured out a couple of things by myself, like under the leg, you, just the very basic stuff. I don't know if I'd call the, the beanbags with the klutz book genuine. I'd call that maybe genuine-ish. If that's an actual right. word, because they, they were the square kind, which I always found to be quite awkward. And they were tiny. But, you know, when I was 12, I looked like I was eight. And so my hands were about the right. Those were like the perfect size for me to, to be playing around with them. I, I suppose now they would be much too small. So who were the first jugglers that you actually hung around with? Was there a, a local club that you got involved with? Yes, it's called the Never Thriving Juggling Club, which was uh, which still meets now more than 35 years later in South Minneapolis every Monday night. I kind of stumbled upon them by accident. My mother encouraged me to ask at the nearby park if those folks knew about juggling classes or a club or something. And in one of the rare lucky moments in my in my entire juggling history, um, the club was meeting right at that moment in the multi-purpose room. 
so I raced back there and that's, you know, all of a sudden I knew 20 jugglers and, and some extremely talented jugglers too. So I went from just kind of fumbling around on my own to, uh, right into, I guess it's the equivalent of being flashed in time forward by a century and suddenly having all this new technology. I, I my resources went from zero to 100% in a minute. I don't quite get the name, Never Thriving. Is that sort of a Minnesotan thing, or who came up with that? doesn't sound very encouraging. I have not fact-checked this, but I'm told that that is the term for a group of jugglers, like a flock of geese or herd of cows. It's a never thriving of jugglers. Interesting. I've heard murder of crows. Yeah. But I never heard thriving of jugglers. But I have not fact-checked that. I might be wrong. It might just be some lore from the early days of the juggling club that someone made up. I like it as a theory, though, so let's go with that. And were there any other jugglers there that especially stood out, maybe who went on to have professional careers or were especially helpful to you? Yes. You know, Minnesota has always been very fortunate to have a, a gathering of extremely talented jugglers it's especially true now, but even in the early 80s, we had some we had some real world-class talent, namely Scott Burton. He was one of the first people I ever met. He was about 18 at the time. He was already juggling five clubs, which, as far as I was concerned, was impossible. And then there were several people there that could juggle five balls and do other stuff. Lots of Renaissance Festival performers doing odd and unusual things with props that I hadn't seen before. But uh, yeah, we were we were lucky to have Scott Burton there. His teammate Brian Wendling uh, would show up fairly often, and they would practice together. So I was seeing things like back to back seven club passing, also stuff that never had crossed my mind as being humanly possible. But uh, we also had Tui Wilson. We uh, occasionally were blessed with visits from a very young passing zone because John Wee is from Minnesota. Uh, yeah, so we, we definitely had some, I, I had some heroes right right out of the gate that I could stare at, emulate, and learn from, and hassle a little bit, and have them teach me some stuff. Yeah, Brian Wendling and Scott Burton were very big influences on the Raspini brothers because they competed a couple years before we did, and it was very memorable. Like you said, their first act I saw to do seven back-to-back in person, and also the first I saw to be wearing loincloths while they juggled, which was, was also very memorable. Yeah, uh, I never did see that video, but I, I remember reading about it. And unfortunately, we lost Scott Burton a couple of years ago. He was uh, had cancer and, and for a long yeah. time was a cancer survivor who gave speeches. But unfortunately, I think it was a couple of years ago he, he passed. Uh, no, it was just uh, just last, uh, I think it's barely been a year, I want to say, just mm. maybe a year ago this month or last, I don't, it's been, it's somewhat recent, but you're right, he struggled with health problems, uh, he had cancer in the early 90s, there was some issues, he, he had a recurring problem with his leg and, and ended up having to get a cadaver bone, put replace you know, one of his own bones with a cadaver bone in his leg, he, so he, he, he had a fairly rough life, which is kind of just makes his, you know, especially later in life, his juggling just all that more impressive because he was struggling along with everything else, but he's still this fantastic, just awe-inspiring juggler. He had what I like to call like the working man style. Like it wasn't very finesseful. Right. But it was almost like brute strength and, and coordination yeah. overcoming the difficulties of juggling. That's kind of, yeah, that's, it seems like a lot of people, he was considered like the strongman juggler of the time or whatever, because he was definitely a, a jock, you know, in terms of jugglers. <laughs> I mean, at the time, and it's still true, a lot of jugglers find their way into juggling through computer science, <laughs> other right, mathematics or, yeah, breaks in between physics classes and all that stuff at university, right? So there weren't too many straight up jocks and Scott was one of them Brian Wendling was one of them Tui kind of he he started out as a skateboarder if I'm not mistaken before he quickly switched to juggling but he kept skateboarding in his act for I think he still does it as a matter of fact yeah Tui's one of those amazing guys who hasn't changed much either over the years still pretty much I've known him probably for about 30 years still looks pretty much exactly the same him and John Wee oh yeah I think have pictures in their attics that get older but they they stay the same Ageless, yeah. Ageless. I... Now, he had one of the early champions, I think, came from Minnesota. Uh, did you know a young Jeff Mason? I did. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, speaking of people who went from zero to amazing in, in a short period of time, Jeff started juggling after I did. And within, I don't know, four years, he was 
world champion or, you know, IJA champion, uh, maybe five years. The So, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say, in addition to his rigorous practice regimen, he probably pulled into juggling with a, a slight advantage in terms of hand-eye coordination, hand speed, dexterity, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I watched him go from beginner to uh, champion in, in a r- relatively short period of time. I think he should also get some credit maybe also for the the beginning popularity of the Diablo, because for some reason, him and I think Fritz Grobe were very far advanced from other people. At first, the Diablo was just an object you would throw quite high and and maybe had a couple tricks like the elevator, but he seemed to have a very mature style uh, even years before others. I wonder how he got that experience. I can't answer that question. I have to assume since, uh, as you pointed out, not too many people were using the Diablo beyond just a couple of basic trips, tricks to fill time maybe in their Renfest act. But um, I perhaps he just built on... It's creative, maybe. Yeah. On these things all on his own. He even got up to two Diablos back there. He could briefly do in, in 88 during his championship routine. But yeah, you're, you're right. It was a very graceful, creative, single Diablo routine that he did in 88. And where that came from, I, I just have to assume just lots and lots of time in the gym messing around with stuff. And he was one of those jugglers who had a lot of potential, but I think when he tried to become a professional juggler, it wasn't a good fit for him. And then he sort of dropped out of sight. Any uh, recent Jeff Mason sightings on your side? No, relatively recent, no. Um, I think he showed up to Juggling Club once about a decade ago here in Minnesota, or it might even be longer, 15 years ago. He just blew into town, but I'm not sure where he ended up. I, I heard rumors he had got into software development or programming or some sort of nerd-type thing but yeah you're right he uh he performed he he i I think he got in a several good years i I know he was on cruise ships briefly hated it uh did a lot of other juggling stuff and just sort of burnt out on it i guess and i i don't i guess that's not a surprise considering how much time and energy he put into juggling well i think personality wise he seemed not shy but a bit reserved i think you have to be sort of a outgoing personality type to really enjoy being a performer to some degree or at least want that attention or something like that. Yeah, you know, I never thought about it, but you're right. He didn't have the same kind of energy pulsating that a lot of people, particularly at like Renaissance festivals, things like that, have when they're on stage, just kind of demanding audience attention because you don't know what they're going to do next. He was definitely more low energy, kind of like I am. So, mm. Well, like my one Jeff Mason story, like uh, I was the show director for the IHA. I've done it, I think... 13 or 14 times. Wow. This was the year he won. And in his act that he won with, he did cigar boxes, uh, three balls, and the Diablo. And all very, very well and very cleanly. But in his act, he started by having like a drink, like toasting the audience. And I had him back for the public show. Uh, I think this was even before it was called Cascade of Stars. I think we just called it the public show. And he wanted to start his act with a glass of champagne instead of whatever he had used in the championships. And he was backstage and he was opening the bottle of champagne and the cork flew out and struck him right above the eye. And oh. therefore he was wincing and had a, <laughs> and this was maybe like probably just a few minutes before he went on stage. Of course. And I think I w- had said the, uh, the very encouraging, okay, well suck it up. You're about to go on or something like that. <laughs> and but once again, he pulled it off very well. So one eyed. In a way he was very much a force of juggling nature. He, he just did stuff. It, what, whether whatever obstacles were in his way, he just bulldozed right through it. I'm sure getting pummeled just above the eye right before going on stage is, is the same thing. He's just, I'm just going to do this thing and I'm going to get it done. It's funny you tell me that story because I too have a. It, it didn't happen backstage, unfortunately. It was on stage. I got uh, very lightly tapped in the open eyeball uh, by a juggling club and had my contact lens knocked out on the, the Mondo Juggle Fest stage a few years back. And boy, was that painful. And I did not finish the act as gracefully, I'm assuming, as Jeff Mason did. Were you able to recover the contact lens or just – you just because they're hard to find. I, I don't wear them myself, but they're very tiny and uh... – Where'd it go? Did it just fly out? <laughs> well, it was, in a way, as horrible and as unlikely and bad luck as that whole situation was, the one saving grace was that it didn't fall on the floor. It just was stuck to my cheek, but I couldn't see it. So Steve had to come over and pick it off my cheek and hand it to me. So now, I mean, just imagine 
how filthy jugglers' hands are after 10, 15, 30 minutes of juggling. They're dirty. And just in general, they're dirty. Right. Right. It's just covered in floor, right? It's effectively whatever was on that floor is now on your hands. So, you know, thousands of bottoms of shoes and whatever those shoes tromps through before being on that floor. So now I've got a dry contact lens covered with the whatever unspeakable bacteria from two jugglers in one hand and in front of 700 people and no water or anything and tried to insert it back into my eye. And even with the adrenaline and everything, I managed to get it done. I'm not sure how. It was That was a, a small miracle, but kind of wish I hadn't because it was so painful and my eyes were watering so much. We were able to finish the act, but uh, it, I wouldn't call it one of our better stage appearances. And you're talking about your team, uh, I believe, Duck and Cover. Yes. But before we get to them, did you do some solo performing? Um, what after you learned to juggle, were you interested in the performing aspect or... How do you think you were going to progress with it? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, actually, especially being around Scott Burton, um, there were other, you know, Tui, John's the Juggler. There was a whole team of people here in Minneapolis that were juggling professionally. You know, that was their job. And so I'd go see them perform and uh, I'd learn stuff from them. The Renaissance Festival had something like six or seven jugglers at it. So I'd, I would go out there each year and check that out. So I, I had it in my head that I was going to be a professional juggler when I was in my teens. You know, there was no other, I certainly didn't have any interest or ambitions for, or even talent in anything else anyway. So, and watching these guys, I thought they were, they had the dream job. Burton, especially, he was doing comedy clubs. This is when comedy clubs were sprouting up and everywhere. You couldn't walk three blocks without bumping into a comedy club, but he had shows. He was, he had a local talent booking agent that kept him super busy. And I thought that was just the dream job. So I had every intention of being a professional juggler when I got old enough, of course, there was the um, small matter of graduating from high school and then college after that. But so, yeah, I did start off solo. I, early in college, I, I managed to find myself a slightly lower caliber talent agent who sent me off to do lower caliber shows like kids' backyard birthday parties and the least expensive corporate gigs and things like that. I did that for several years, and that is when the reality of professional juggling sort of landed on me hard. I realized after a while that I, I really did not like performing. And also, uh, you didn't like proofreading very much because I read a story in one of your, in your book that one of your... Could you tell us what one of your first business cards said, how, how it described... What you did? Yes. Well, Dan, it's not that I didn't like proofreading. It's that my poor brain wasn't very good at it. It was, it wasn't just, you know, again, this is the late 80s. It wasn't discovered until my junior year in college that I had a bit of a dyslexic combo, you know, just a, a, my unique little mix of learning disability. And uh, between my slow, illegible handwriting and seeing things not entirely in the correct order, I was not a very good student, despite the fact that I attended every minute of every class all through high school and college. But uh, yes, part of that led to a disaster in my first set of juggling business cards. I had a little silhouette of myself juggling five clubs. It looked great. I picked out this font that I really liked and I, I had it all. The layout was great. And, you know, it was the late 80s. So this one wasn't like on a computer where I was able to move things around by millimeter here, millimeter. I, I, I felt like I'd done a pretty good job. And I turned that in felt really good. A couple weeks later, they're done. They're ready. I picked them up. And it was at that moment in the first two seconds that I looked at the card, even though I had stared at the template for hours before I said it, as soon as I looked at the card, I saw that it didn't say juggling on the card. It said jugging. I'd forgotten the L. And yeah, J-U-G-G-I-N-G. -G -G. You, you forgot the L. Yeah, right. And so, uh, you know, of course, my in, immediate reaction was to turn to the, the card printing guy and go, why... Did you do this? Why? What, what? You couldn't have fixed this obvious typo. You couldn't have called me. And apparently it was one of their rules that they did everything precisely as, as it was submitted on the template. So they couldn't change anything. Whether or not they thought it was an obvious typo or not, they weren't allowed to change it. They couldn't have – apparently they didn't have telephones. I mean hmm. I'm not sure what happened. They, they couldn't call and check that perhaps I didn't mean – you know, I wasn't doing a thing called jugging in front of large groups of people requiring me to have a business card for the – you know, that activity. And of course, it was I was a freshman in college. I didn't have much money and printing cards back then wasn't nearly as cheap as it is now. And I, I just – 
I had no choice but to sort of limp along with the, this ridiculous typo in my cards for about, I don't know, I must have had them at least six months before I you know put together the money and, and felt comfortable to print another set. So it was a very embarrassing uh, beginning to my, my career in professional juggling. Did you what draw an L in or just just leave it as it was? Um, I did a number of things. Yeah, I definitely would write a little joke note on each card, but that got tiring too. I would do them in batches of like 40 or whatever. And it's just like, ugh, I have to have to make a joke out of this on all these cards. And so, yes, I would doctor it up a little bit, but that still was, I, I still felt like I had done the, the poor man's solution and, and because I was literally a poor man at the time. And yeah, there you go. Not, not an auspicious start. But then you you teamed up with the this other juggler. Was he part of the your club, or how did you meet Stephen then? Oh, um, that came quite a bit later. I first met Steve. We went to the same high school, but for some reason I never saw him there. This is still a mystery to this day. I'm not sure where he was hiding out. But I finally met him at the University of Minnesota, which also had a very busy, very active juggling club. Uh, that's where we first met, and I was I had learned how to juggle club uh, past clubs many years before, of course, but I had never done it actively trying to improve myself in the in the thought of maybe doing it in a more formal fashion, like on a team. But the University of Minnesota Juggling Club did shows all the time. We uh, we got paid to go out and do shows and the money was reinvested back in the club for parties and things like that. So we got, uh, you know, without having to search for our own gigs, we, we got a lot of good stage practice. And as a result of that, I, I had to kind of learn to work within a large group of people sometimes uh, on stage. When you met him, did you sort of like when you started to juggle with him, was there an immediate sort of like, wow, we have something better as a team than I do as a solo? Did you sort of put your solo career aside to focus on the team or what were your priorities at that time? Oh, it's just like now. Uh, back then, it was very haphazard, directionless, kind of just winging it type stuff. We started passing clubs together because we, we sort of found each other in that respect because we were both extremely good catchers, but not particularly accurate throwers. So when you get two catchers together, they can just sort of make up for the other one's shortcomings, right? And uh, so we kind of glommed onto each other because we were able to do all this fun stuff without having to worry about our throws and, and have, you know, focus on just doing wild and fun stuff. And as long as we were catching each other's stuff, there wasn't a problem. But, you know, that caused us to become even worse throwers, <laughs> just throw juggling clubs with each other. We um, Then when we would go and pass clubs with other people, I, I can't speak for Steve, but when I did, and I was suddenly expected to throw clubs accurately, more or less on time, the things that I wasn't accustomed to. It was definitely um, affected my ability to pass clubs with other people. But even back then, we had a kind of lawless... You, you remember the game Black Club, right? Where one club, you can just... Yeah, that was that was sort of a Minnesota thing, wasn't it? I, I never played it. Was it? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, cause we, I worked at the Renaissance Fair that you talked about with Tui and guys like that. And there were always a lot of jugglers, like you said. And we had our own version on the West Coast that me and Owen Morris developed called garbage but uh i think black club was sort of a, a version of that where you had one club that was meant to be thrown very poorly yes in with the, the intention the of making the other person drop but you know it had to it was kind of like pitching a baseball it had to land in a certain box you know reasonable catching radius and if you got through it outside that radius you know, you lost the point, but if you mm. got it in that radius and the catcher missed it, then you got that point. And well, juggling with Steve was kind of like juggling six black clubs. You know, we delighted in making each other drop and throwing just ridiculous circus shots, things, just improvising stuff that wouldn't necessarily have been polite if we had done it with other people. And that's kind of how it started. Just the the idea that we were free to just throw garbage at each other, which sort of led itself to developing odd, unusual tricks. None, none of them in the early days were particularly good tricks, but it's kind of, you know, how things started. We we had the freedom to throw whatever without worrying about the other person's welfare because we understood that it was the catcher's obligation to either catch it, get out of the way, you know, run for their lives. And that allowed us to do things that were a little bit less constructive, but always fun. So we weren't 
working on tricks so much as just having a really good time for years. I mean, that's that's how that went. We didn't really work on tricks that we might perform in front of other people for, I mean, we were, we'd been practicing for fun for years before that even became an idea. Yeah, we used to have an expression, we called it the ZOC. Did you ever hear that? The ZOC, the, no. the zone of catchability. Oh, never heard of it. <laughs> And as long as it was in your ZOC, it was the catcher's responsibility that there was a mistake. And if it was in your ZOC, it was the catcher's fault. Uh, if it was outside the ZOC, then it was the thrower's fault. Well, the uh, genuine duck and cover philosophy is the ZOC is anything within about 15 feet <laughs> radius of your body, front, back, side, didn't matter. I guess that's part of the reason why we, that what led us to coming up with tricks that normal people with any sort of level of self-preservation wouldn't have thought of. But also, I think, uh, was it Brian Dubay or someone gave you the nickname the destroyer of clubs? Were you, were you especially rough on the clubs? I don't now. I don't recall anyone formally calling me that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I had a reputation for sure, and in in my defense, I I feel like it was unwarranted <laughs> for breaking clubs. And what the, the root of it? You know, I broke clubs like a normal person for years, especially in the late '80s and early '90s. Clubs club design was still sort of evolving, and they weren't as sturdy as they are now. Uh, Dubays, Todd Smiths, all those. They kind of made up for wasn't so much design as just making it as hard and and sturdy as possible. So heavy, thick plastic, thicker dowels. They they were heavier. They hurt a lot more when they hit you in the face or the collarbone or forearm or whatever. But um, nonetheless, uh, despite the sturdiness, they broke a little bit more. But there was this one occasion when I got six brand new Dubé clubs. And within a week, I had broken five of them. <laughs> I want to say that that was just a bad batch. I mean, I wasn't doing anything unusual. I did juggle on cement one day, so that probably didn't help the, the clubs in terms of high impact drops. But I broke five clubs in a week, brand new clubs. And when I sent those back to Dubé, I, I think word got around that I was a destroyer of clubs. But in a pleasant twist, uh, Dubé was like everybody else, was trying to perfect and hone his club design so that it could be tougher but lighter and with different materials and kind of using design tactics rather than sheer brute sturdiness to, to make the club stronger. So he started asking me to send back every single club that I broke so that he could study it, see how I broke it, what I did, and then kind of use that as a kind of a guide for what he needed to parts of the club he had to shore up. So for years, I was kind of a, a club tester for him because he believed, like many other people, that I was particularly hard on the clubs. And the, the, so the thing is, I'm much more hard on the clubs now. Back then, doesn't even compare to what Steve and I do to juggling clubs today, but they're just more durable now. So were you and Steve more of like a casual coupling? I mean, did you go on to work professionally with him or was it more of a hobby for you two? We dabbled in performing for sure. For a little while, we, you know, we did walk around juggling and, and some street performing at like local festivals and carnivals. We did a little bit of stage stuff, but not too much. We, we were never that ambitious. You know, I had already gone through a couple of years of solo performing and decided that was robbing me of the joy of juggling and sort of abandoned it. I wasn't in a hurry to get back into performing again, even if just once in a while for a little bit of extra cash. But we did. Back in the day, there was always someone calling the University of Minnesota Club or the Never Thriving Club asking about any jugglers that could perform that week. It was always a last minute thing. Do you have Two people that can show up tomorrow at noon for three hours. We were college students. We, and then, you know, recent graduates after that, we showed up for a lot of those shows and got a little money and got in front of people. But and I think the, again, the, the joy of juggling for normal humans rather than the chaotic gym juggling that we enjoyed uh, sort of took the fun out of it. And we drifted away from that after a while. So do you think that the average audience appreciates certain things that are not as enjoyable for the juggler. Like, given your druthers, you would have done crazy passing. What do you think the audience wants to see? The the normal human audience, the non-juggling yeah, audience, the, not the uh, simian audience, but the normal the normal yes. human audience. What do you think? There's stuff that is always audience pleasing. Unusual things like in my act, for example, I had I juggled a bowling ball, a baseball bat, and a hacky sack at once. You know, there was completely insane people juggling three bowling balls or the chainsaws, as you mentioned. 
torches and sharp things. I, I briefly dabbled in that, but decided that was too hacked. You know, there I, I didn't yeah. feel like I was being challenged. It wasn't any fun, but it's those things that audiences want to see. They want to see you throw a club way up high and then catch it more than they want to see you juggle five clubs. Of course, they want to be entertained, so you have to be clever and, and funny. And I was still young enough where I hadn't quite grasped the nuances of comedy juggling. So I wasn't great at that, but the audience pleasing stuff did not please me. And, you know, at mm. the end of the day, this was my hobby and I can do what I want. And so I shied away from it, if not completely shunned it uh, for years. And what did you study in college? So you said you had some learning difficulties, especially with writing. Did you, but then you became an author. Was that what you studied in college? No, I was a theater major. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I figured out about my sophomore year that if I was going to get through college at all. It was going to have to be on the strength of some major or course of study where it didn't require me to, my passing or failing wasn't dependent on my note-taking skills because I already even knew before we had figured out what my problem was that note-taking was not ever going to be uh, one of my strengths. So I dabbled in speech communications. I did radio TV broadcast for a while before that department kind of just shut down for lack of funds at the U of M at the time. And then I had taken a couple of acting classes just to fulfill some distribution requirements at the U, you know, the liberal arts stuff. And I thought, well, this theater thing, it's not going to get me any high paying jobs, but it is probably my quickest and least painful path to get a BA, you know, get my degree and get out of college. Uh, otherwise, it could have been longer. It could have never happened. I don't know. I was I was okay at languages too, but I didn't feel like you know I had studied Spanish and German and Norwegian, but uh, and Spanish was by far my strongest language. But I didn't, didn't love it so much that I wanted it to be my major. You did some time backpacking in Europe. Was that sort of after your college career to find yourself and do a little juggling or? What how old were you when you did that? I first started traveling internationally by myself before it even occurred to me to juggle on the street. Part of the reason for that was in Minneapolis, and I'm not sure what the rules were around the country, but in Minneapolis in the 80s, you had to have a permit to street perform. You, if you were caught passing the hat, you could be fined for that. And so it didn't occur to me to bring my juggling stuff with me the first uh, couple times I went to Europe and, and street perform. But I did find other jugglers and, and use their stuff. And then there was one trip in particular where I brought my prop bag along, which, you know, when you're backpacking, having a second, not particularly heavy, but very you know, clumsy, large bag with you is, is not ideal. You know, <laughs> it was it was back when super heavy, poorly designed backpacks were how backpackers got around. There was no wheelie suitcases or any other something that didn't involve some sort of backbreaking effort. So having a b oversized, overstuffed 50-pound backpack and a juggling prop bag, that was the first and last time I did that. But in any case, I was able to get some street performing in. I, I had a lot of success in Scandinavia, particularly Norway. There are very good tippers on the street there back in those days. And uh, the least amount of success in Barcelona. Uh, this was before there was thousands of street performers taking over every street in Barcelona. And they just didn't seem that impressed with juggling or didn't care. It was rare for people to even stop and stare for a little while, and I, I did not make any money. <laughs> but it's a good adventure. Like you said, you, you sort of studied languages, and then you got into writing at some point. I want to get into your writing career because one of the reasons you're on the podcast is to promote your new book. That's right. Before we get to that, let's get to your first book, which has a very intriguing title. And maybe this goes back to your backpacking in Europe because it's called Backpacking with Dracula. Yeah, well, uh, I was working a normal person job with great benefits and putting my life in order, you know, the, the typical life path. You get a job, you advance yourself, you get married, you buy a house, all that stuff. And I had done all that stuff, but the marriage didn't work out. The house was way too big for one person to live in. My job had, after nine years, it occurred to me that I was never going to be happy doing that. And um, this was the early aughts, you know, in 2003, you could sell a house for a ridiculous profit. So after only three years, I sold my house for like 100% profit. So all of a sudden, I had this nest egg, sizable nest egg, and I decided to do what I should have done between high school and college or after college. I went on a serious long-term backpacking trip. I was 33, so I was a little old, but I've always been a late bloomer. You know, I, I was fine. I wasn't opposed to living rough and sleeping in a dorm room with 12 people. It was fine. While I was doing that trip, it was during that time that 
I sort of engineered a travel writing career out of nowhere. I'd, I'd never taken a writing class, but since I was traveling constantly, I had tons of material. And since I was writing every single day, you know, when you practice that much anything, you're going to get better and better at it. I did a lot of reading, but this was 2003. So it was early internet. I couldn't just Google how to be a travel writer. So I did a lot of trial and error, but also at the same time, there wasn't a thousand aspiring travel writers on Twitter and Facebook trying to also get some of that paying work. And so uh, with less competition, I was eventually able to get a toe in the door at a magazine. And that led to other jobs. And the resume just sort of snowballed from there. And I eventually became a Lonely Planet author. And one of my first duties was to write the Romania guidebook for Lonely Planet. And since I was there for so long, I and, and I had met a Romanian girl who dragged me home to mom and dad. I ended up living in Romania for about a year and a half, all told. And uh, it was during that time that I first got my real close look at the real life Dracula. I didn't know much. I, I vaguely knew he was the inspiration for the Count Dracula vampire, but... We're talking Vlad the Impaler, is that right? Correct. Sorry, yes, I should have said it. Vlad the Impaler. Yes, Vlad. What a great nickname. Vlad the Impaler. Yes. 15th century prince of Wallachia, which is just south of Transylvania. Bram Stoker sort of reinvented him and put him in Transylvania because it just sounded spookier. But he was prince of Wallachia, had a short but very productive and memorable career as prince of Wallachia before being killed. He became famous again for impaling people. And what was uh, the reason for that was it was the most painful way to kill a guy and not have them die right away. Like the method of impaling avoided all the major organs. So they would literally suffer for maybe, you know, a day, even two days before they actually died. And in the meanwhile, they're wriggling on this stake. It was just full on medieval torture. And that line, I, I like to think that the line from Pulp Fiction where where Ving Rames, he delivers this yeah. line, I'm about to get medieval on your ass. I I like to think he was thinking of Vlad Tepish at the time, La Dracula, because this guy was, it was a different time. People were all horrible, sadistic people back then. Warfare was, you know, politics, the, the way to get rid of your opponent was to slaughter their whole family, right? So that some cousin or brother wouldn't come back and try to usurp you or murder you a few years later. The only way to guarantee your safety was to just make sure they were all wiped out, even the kids. And there was the Roman crucifixion, so, I mean, this it's not like Vlad was the one and only person being this horrible, violent person at the time. He was just slightly more horrible and violent and, uh, and obviously a jerk. Having researched multiple guidebooks in Romania and getting all this uh, exposure to Vlad Dracula, who is considered a national hero there, even to this day, I thought, well, let's see here. I want to write a book. There's vampires involved. A guy named Dracula, that's a good name recognition. That's high on the list. And it's Romania, not too many travel memoirs in Romania. I just kind of pieced it together. I was like, oh, I realized I had a, what was a pretty decent foundation for a memoir. Unfortunately, I missed the vampire bandwagon a little bit. Uh, you know, their vampire movies and stories sort of petered out right about the time my book came out. So <laughs> it was all zombies by the time I'd missed the vampire tsunami, but still it sold well. I was lucky in that I had a lot of help because I had lots of connections in travel media. They helped me promote it, even though it was self-published. You know, everybody I knew from Romania, they helped me out. Um, so I accidentally laid the groundwork for having this huge media marketing help. But uh, yeah, that was my first book, a travel memoir with the famous, terrifying Vlad the Impaler. And then I go into vampires later because vampire lore, even to this day, you can find people in certain parts of Eastern Europe that still believe vampires are a real thing. It's a very superstitious place now. So imagine what it was like, you know, a century ago when Bram Stoker was writing or even centuries before that when Vlad Dracula was going around and, you know, any you could talk anyone into anything. Do you think you've caught the wave of the juggling tsunami? Because uh, you've just come out with a new book and maybe, I don't know if, the, if you're in the midst of the tsunami or the tsunami is still coming, oh. but your book is entitled Throwing Up Notes from 35 Years of Juggling. What prompted your desire to write a book about your personal experience with juggling? First of all, I it took me about two years to shake off the trauma and and all the energy I put into the first book. You know, writing a book, especially all by yourself without any sort of people that have agents and publishers, they, there's a whole little team of people helping you get your book out. And I was 
just on my own. That was a, a big effort. And I said, oh, I'm never writing a book again. That's it. That was wow. But it's kind of like climbing a really murderous mountain, right? You get done and you're like, that. I'm never doing that again. That was awful. And then after a year or two, you kind of forget about the horrible parts and remember the fun parts. And so I decided I had another book in me. And uh, I juggling, of course, is a topic I can write about without too much research, especially if it's a book about me, uh, if it's a memoir. And I'd gotten some feedback from the, the Backpacking with Dracula book that there wasn't enough me in there. Like they wanted more life's feelings, you know, experiences, kind of what was, what was life thinking when this happened and things like that. So I knew that with my next book, I wanted to be more personal. And so the, with the juggling and, and the personal, I said, well, what better way to put those two things together? Something I know really well and something I've been doing for 35 years. I've got plenty of stories for that. And, and I think that's what sparked it. Yeah, there's plenty of stories. There's also stories about your, your competing and your performing. One, one that strikes my mind is uh, that stands out is the Mondo Juggling Fest and that importance in your life and career. Can you tell us that's in that's a local juggling convention in Minnesota, Mondo? Yes, I had a hand. This is this never fails to make me feel old. I had a hand in planning the very first Mondo in 1989, and so the 30th annual Mondo is coming up here in February 2019, and just that, just having that there, like knowing that I was around for the first one and now it's at its 30th just makes me really feel my age. That's maybe one of the few enduring things that I did in the world of juggling that's still going. I don't really have much participation in organizing it anymore. It's one of my favorite juggling festivals just because of my personal connection to it. And then the sort of the book sort of ends at uh, age 44. You decided at a certain point to compete in the IGA I think this 2014 with your partner as Duck and Cover. Yes. And you go into great detail the competition experience. Can you sort of sum up what that meant for you uh, in a little shorter version for our podcast? Well, yeah, I suppose uh, you probably identified with that part too. You've competed plenty. It was, I mean, just imagine a like a sports movie montage of training. That was kind of what it was like. We had, like I said, not had too much ambition, but we got kind of talked into it by Steve's girlfriend. Then and all of a sudden, it just sort of the momentum took us uh, into it. And we um, practiced our little hearts out because, like I said, we hadn't done anything serious. So all of our tricks were very inconsistent. So we had a, a lot of work to do, but we worked hard for a year and a half and we competed. And unfortunately, there was a lot of regrettable drops. But that whole year and a half, that was, uh, in terms of my juggling career, that is probably one of the, the top most memorable things, not, not just because it's so recent, but also just because it took up so much time and energy. It was like a part-time job that I wasn't getting paid to do. You're not currently a performing juggler or a professional juggler. You've moved on to becoming a uh, what I think is a dream job, this freelance travel writer. <laughs> and that sort of brings us up to the present. And this year you had a a bit of a med medical emergency. Do you plan to write about that for your next memoir? Ooh. Um, or is that too what, painful what, to talk about? No, I just don't know if it merits a, a whole book. I did, I've had a remarkable string of good health my entire life. Like I had to have a minor surgery at birth to correct a, uh, a defect with my esophagus. Otherwise, I really hadn't even had stitches, much less a broken bone or anything my whole life. So I guess I'd sort of saved up all this good karma and the bad karma had to had to swing back sooner or later. So yeah, earlier this year, my gift for ignoring pain is the pretty much the reason why this got so serious. I, I ignored a stomach ache for too long and it turned out to be my appendix very slowly turning on me. And I didn't go to the hospital until I had burst, which turned out to be the most painful thing that I've ever experienced in my life, and um, also fairly dangerous. But it was all—it wasn't just the the pain and my first real experience in a hospital, which was all, of course, extremely memorable, borderline traumatizing. But it was also juggling. Actually, swings back to this too. I after the surgery, and then I had to have another surgery because I gave myself a hernia while I was recovering from the the appendectomy. So after those two surgeries, I wasn't allowed to do much of anything, but I was able to juggle sort of carefully. I had to take it easy. I couldn't, uh, Steve was under orders not to throw anything too high and outside because if I reached too much with my right arm, that uh, things would start to pull down where I didn't want them to pull. Juggling uh, was part of the thing that helped me, that nursed me back to recovery when I wasn't allowed to lift weights or 
ride a bike or anything like that. It was juggling and walking the, for those first few months. Now, do you think uh, juggling still has a place in your future? Do we can we see oh. cover possibly be competing again in a, maybe next year in in Fort Wayne, Indiana? <laughs> Is that possible? I will promise nothing. You know, Steve <laughs> and I still appear on on stage. We're juggling for jugglers. I mean, if that weren't obvious by that's the stage, we will be at Madfest in January and Mondo in February, juggling on stage there. In terms of uh, com- competition, I can't say. Like I said, it was kind of like writing a book. It was so traumatizing the first time. I swore I would never do it again. But now that we've had a few years to recover, I'm not entirely against it. So we'll see. And speaking about your book, let's do some promotion. Where can people get your book? Is it available on Amazon? Is it coming out? Yes. In, uh... So um, by the time this podcast is is published and, and available, both the ebook and the print book should be available on Amazon. Just search for my uniquely difficult to spell name and or throwing up and or juggling and You'll find uh, the the green cover, the telltale green cover with the cartoon guy juggling yellow balls. Yeah, that is, as we speak, coming out. I I should get the print proof today, as a matter of fact. And if that doesn't look too messed up, I'm going to flip the switch and the and the print book should be available this weekend. And you got some nice quotes on uh, from different jugglers. I did. But I, you said you want to try to get Gatto to read it in quote, but you had no <laughs> luck on that one. Well, yes, I, I approached uh, several folks, including one Daniel Holtzman, who gave me a very nice review and, and blurb for the back cover. Also, Jay Gilligan also came out and wrote a very nice thing for me. But yes, I, I approached Gatto. I mean, there's a chapter that's literally called, I got to learn how to juggle because... Gato was the reason why I learned how to juggle. And I could not, the man would not answer any form of communication. He he really does not want anything to do, at least with me. I don't know about juggling in general, but I, I could not get him to, I couldn't get him to look up from his uh, his new career to to even just read it, much less give me a blurb. Well, you're not alone there, Life. I've contacted him about being on this podcast. He knows I've always been a big admirer of him. I, I certainly still consider him the greatest juggler the greatest pure juggler that the world has ever produced. And I'm a big fan of his whole life and career. I've, I've saw him many times perform, always uh, flawlessly, the way he handled yeah. pressure, his technique. Huge admirer, but he's moved on. And as some of us do when we leave juggling, we decide not to look back. It, yeah, it's a hard ending for, yeah, hard exit for, for Anthony. So I'm glad to know it's not personal <laughs> if, he, if he won't even appear on your podcast. Well, he did tell me he doesn't like you, but besides that, he he didn't mention you at all. No, uh, he he didn't say that directly to me, but, you know, the silence sometimes is deafening, so you never know. But, yeah, I I mean, I'm surprised that there isn't even a little bit of sentimental, you know, I don't know if you've looked online, but the documentation of his life and his career is not that great. He still has a kind of real old, not that great website. I mean, just his presence online documenting his career as it stands at the moment as we speak it's not that impressive and i hope either he or someone uh, turns around and really bolsters that because of anyone that i can think of right now that man deserves to have his life enshrined in in much brighter and and high profile terms than the way it is right now i'd like to end this podcast by saying you also deserve to have your book read it's called throwing up notes from 35 years of juggling and Leif Peterson is spelled L-E-I-F-P-E-T-T-E-R-S-O-N, Life Pedersen, I should say. Right. Um, so it's it's pronounced Life Pedersen. You, I thought you were doing a bit. No, no. I just. It's P-E-T-T-E-R-S-E-N. Okay, one more time. L-E-I-F. Correct. P-E-T-T-E-R-S-O-N. No. Oh. S-E-N. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll cut this part out to make me sound more professional. Is it spelled D-O-N or is it yes, D-A-N? Yes, Donald Houtzman. Okay. Well, with my name, people always put a T in there, and it's, it's just Holzman, not Holzman. Yeah, I, I've, I've probably even done that myself. Let's end by getting your name right on this podcast. Okay. L-E-I-F-P-E-T-T-E-R-S-E-N. Nailed it. Pronounced Life Pedersen. Yes. Everybody get his new book available on Amazon.com. And other sources by looking up his name, and you'll see the distinctive green cover with the wonderful picture on the front. It's throwing up notes from 35 years of juggling. And I want to thank you for being on our podcast. A big thanks to Life Pedersen from all the <laughs> listeners of the Drop Everything podcast. Thanks, Life. Thank you very much, Daniel Holtzman. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast. 
number 64, my conversation with Life Pedersen, a name I will never get wrong again. He's the author of the new book, Throwing Up, Notes from 35 Years of Juggling, available at Amazon.com. So get that for one of your Christmas gifts. Hey, looking for other Christmas gifts, don't forget there's also The Ring Dama, available at ringdama.com. And also my book, 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Reforming Your Act for Jugglers and Other Variety Artists, also available at Amazon.com. Before we go, let's thank our main sponsor, the most important sponsor, and of course, that's the International Jugglers Association, also known as the IJA. Find out about them at juggle.org. I've been involved with the IJ since 1980, and I've always enjoyed my time at the festivals. And really looking forward to next year's in Fort Wayne, Indiana, directed by the great historian David Kane. All right, go out there in the world. Drop everything, except when you're juggling.